Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. Ignition. Stop. Go Falcon. Go Dragon. Got speed. Axiom 1. How much would you pay to go to space? For Canadian businessman Mark Pathy, it was 50 million U.S. dollars. He was one of three extremely wealthy individuals who took a trip up to the International Space Station for what was slated to be a 10-day stay this month. He bought the ticket from a private spaceflight company called Axiom Space. And after all that uh, training and uh, anticipation and the multiple delays to finally be in that seat, and to feel the engines ignite and the thrust start to push us up off the launch pad, you know, a few minutes later, only to to reach uh, space, that was uh, unbelievable, really exhilarating. That's Mark talking to the Globe science reporter, Ivan Semenik, while floating around in the space station. Sort of getting oriented in the space station, we came in through the zenith hatch coming from the ceiling, so it was a bit uh, disorienting coming in. And uh, that was really a fantastic moment to have finally arrived. It was actually pretty emotional uh, to think, wow, we, we finally made it. And, and it was great to be here and, you know, and then to be around, floating around in, in zero gravity or microgravity um, is quite an experience. By the time you hear this episode, Mark should be back on Earth, assuming that the weather conditions work out. And his trip might represent the start of a new chapter in space tourism. One that goes beyond rich people joyriding in space for a weightless selfie. You know, if space is going to become, especially human spaceflight, is going to play a a larger, more important role in our future, it clearly needs to be accessible to a broader range of people. Ivan's here to talk about the future of private space travel. That's today on The Decibel. Ivan, thanks so much for joining us again. My pleasure. So you actually interviewed Mark while he's on the International Space Station, the, the ISS. How did, how did that actually work? It's not the first time I've interviewed someone on the station, but it's the first time I've interviewed someone who was not working through a national space program, say through NASA or the Canadian Space Agency. What was interesting chatting with uh, someone like Mark Pathy is, you know, he's been training for a few months, but uh, his the whole center of his life has not been going to space. And certainly he has not done it in the media spotlight like a representative of a, of a national space agency. So it was a, it was sort of an ordinary conversation, which I found kind of refreshing. I'm just curious about like the logistics of it. Was it like a Zoom call? You guys on video talking to each other? I could see him. He could not see me. And I, that's the norm for speaking with uh, astronauts on the space station. So they, they basically come into frame and he was floating around. Uh, you know, he, he was sort of keeping himself upright, but I, I asked him to give everyone a wave so I could uh, do a screen grab. And he tried it in a few different orientations, which, which was fun at the end. <laughs> what did you hear from Mark about why he wanted to do this? Why did he decide to pay and go up to the ISS? He, of course, like many people, was sort of a space fan and a science fiction fan. He 
talked a lot about growing up on Star Trek and so on and, and uh, sort of dreaming of that idea, but never imagined that would be something that uh, he would experience. He didn't think of himself as a person who talked a lot about going to space, but probably he does because when Axiom Space, this private company, first advertised itself as looking for crew members for the first private mission, uh, a friend of his sent him the ad, a company he says he'd never heard of before, mm-hmm. uh, and he had to take a serious look at it, and after some long consideration decided, is this something I want to do for real, or is it just a fantasy that's going to stay a fantasy? I also wonder, because astronauts have to go through a lot of training, did he have to do similar kinds of training before he actually went up there? Uh, his training really began in earnest last fall. Uh, and that's where he sort of, you know, he's he runs an investment company. He's got his own business. He's got a family life. He's He's had about a thousand hours of training and all the various aspects of, you know, launch and being on station, all of the things, but certainly enough to know what he's doing at this point and also to, to conduct the science. Uh, and, uh, and he's had to fit that around a fairly hectic schedule to keep uh, the rest of his life going. Hmm. Have there been other Canadian space tourists to arrive at the ISS before Mark? Yes, one other. Uh, people will remember Aguila Liberté, who uh, is the founder, one of the founders of Cirque du Soleil. Cirque du Soleil. Uh, so we're preparing that show, and I think uh, at the end, uh, the coverage we had so far uh, for the event has been very, very good. For the awareness of the situation of water uh, in the world, I think uh, we're ev- exactly where we want to be at this time. So we'll see later. After- the focus uh, for him was uh, raising awareness for water. Or water issues on Earth, mm. you know, and and it did. You know, he wore a, famously wore a clown nose in space, and uh, uh, you know, kind of got some media attention that way. But this is a little bit different because it's meant to be not just sort of an individual finding a way up, but uh, something that uh, will become a regular feature. Last year, we actually saw a bunch of um, billionaires have very flashy kind of blasts off into space. Um, they were actually just on the edge of outer space. But but anyways, now that we have Mark Pathy, a Canadian who, who paid a lot of money to go to the International Space Station, what sets Mark's trip apart from those of other wealthy individuals and, and celebrities? Right. So, and, and I think what's interesting about the timing of this is, uh, he first announced his intention to go to the space station back in, uh, January of 2021. So it's, it's been more than a year ago. And in that time, he sort of the landscape, or at least the media landscape for, you know, uh, wealthy entrepreneurs going to space has really changed because, you know, two high profile billionaires, so Richard Branson and, uh, and uh, Jeff Bezos, both with their own space companies, did suborbital space flights. We've also seen William Shatner go up and others. These, and I just want to stress, these are suborbital orbital flights. So they're launched in these vehicles of different kinds, but they go up. They don't actually orbit the Earth. They go up and they go down, but they sort of cross that threshold, the 50 mile uh, threshold, which is, uh, you know, by some measures defined as as the bo- the boundary of space. That's 50 miles up, like out of Earth. Is that the idea? 50 miles altitude, right? If you think about it, it's yeah. not that far. You could easily drive that distance in no time. But but uh, space is not far away. 
This is a completely different uh, proposition. Uh, the company Axiom bills itself, actually bills itself as the first private space station. They haven't got there yet, but uh, they uh, say that they're on the path to having a fully private, fully commercial of uh, a uh, space station uh, of their own uh, but in, you know as a starting point they are uh, you know basically the the organizers or the coordinators of commercial missions to bring paying customers uh, to the international space station there are meant to be more missions of this kind and eventually modules added to the space station uh, and perhaps uh, you know the longer range plan is to have those uh, basically separate off and have a completely independent, uh, commercially funded space station. And you mentioned that he's doing some work up there while, while he's up there. Can you tell us about that? I think there is a bit of eye rolling that goes along with very wealthy individuals going to space because we've seen so much of it in the last year. And it's clear that uh, Mark Pathian, in fact, all of the people involved in this uh, Axiom flight are clearly trying to distance themselves from that sort of joyride idea. All of them are involved in uh, a fairly uh, dense suite of uh, science experiments that they've taken with them or that they're engaged with. Mark Pathy has got 16 experiments working with several Canadian universities, also with the Montreal Children's Hospital. And now as, as the Globe science reporter, Ivan, are there any of these experiments and things that he's doing up there that really stand out to you as, as exciting things? Some of them are, are cool, and, and there is a cool factor there. I'm always a little bit skeptical of the cool factor, but I have to say one of the ones that uh, will certainly has already gotten some attention is this first uh, demonstration of two-way holoportation. So what happens is, you know, uh, someone in space wears this special headset called a hollow lens and basically the headset allows you to see your surroundings everything that's around you but in addition to that there's a person in another location who kind of materializes star wars like in front of you in three dimensions and you can communicate with them and that person is on the ground that sounds very cool actually that sounds yeah. very cool he, he's demonstrated <laughs> that technology a few times and and uh, interacted with, with uh, people on the ground. And the practical application, and they tested this out, was to do sort of a mock uh, consultation with a physician. But also, um, you know, I think that he's able to do some experiments that maybe would be sensitive for professional astronauts. And I thought one thing that was interesting, he's working with the Montreal Children's Hospital on this one, ex some experiments to study pain in space. And uh, as the... Uh, Researchers uh, in Montreal told me this is not an easy thing to talk to astronauts about. If you've been training for years and years to get on a mission, the last thing you want to talk about is experiencing pain while you're in space. Mm. Their remark was that they found very little in the published literature on this, and were hoping. And so they've they're doing a, a bunch of experiments to to try to explore this with with Mark Pathy, and there are also Earth observing experiments too. So he's getting a lot of opportunities to look down at the ground from space and do photography, and that's clearly having an impact. How does this private spaceflight company Axiom Space? How do they make sure that these trips are safe for regular people? Well, I mean, there is a certain degree of risk that's, you know, you can't completely uh, eliminate. Mark Pathy spoke to me about that as well. He clearly expressed confidence that in the technology. The space station, of course, has been 
now uh, in orbit for more than two decades. You know, and now we've seen people ferried up to the space station uh, in a in the SpaceX Dragon capsule. This is the the company Elon Musk's company, but also other companies are involved in bringing cargo to the station. So this is now becoming the norm. I think we're going to see it become the norm as well. Uh, or, or at least uh, a, a kind of private-public partnership when uh, exploration moves further to the moon and elsewhere. So it seems it seems like a trend that is going to become a permanent feature of of how space goes forward. And so this is clearly a milestone. I mean, we've gone from uh, you know the space shuttle and other uh, capsules, you know, built by national programs bringing people to the station to now SpaceX. Other companies are involved in bringing supplies and astronauts. And, uh, you know, this idea that, in fact, there could be a fully private space venture seems like the next step in that direction. Uh, you know, Pathy told me at one point when I interviewed him before he flew that, uh, you know, if space, especially human space flight, is going to play a, a larger, more important role in our future, it clearly needs to be accessible to a broader range of people. Hmm. You know, now, granted, right now, that means people who are very wealthy. Uh, but you can easily also imagine not just a single individual who's self-financed, but you can imagine consortia of research institutes or tech companies or other or venture capitalists or others who might have reason to access low Earth orbit. And, you know, that keyhole uh, that, uh, you know, where you apply to have an experiment through a national space agency, you know, that, that's very limited. Uh, and so, you know, this creates new pathways for people to try things in space that uh, maybe would not have been possible before. And what do government-run space programs then get out of an increase in, in private space flight? There is a little bit of revenue because Axiom is paying for access to some extent. Mm. I think really what it does, it's allowing a broader range of interests and channeling private resources into space in an area that has been well established or well mapped out by national space agencies, which in theory would then allow them to focus on more distant areas of human space exploration. So, you know, NASA wants to go back to the moon. Canada has also signed on to this. Of course, we know people are eager to go to Mars, or at least some people are eager to see a person on Mars and, you know, kind of more uh, pushing the envelope that way to, to more deep space flight. There is a certain uh, element of low Earth orbit that is becoming routine. And, uh, you know, in a sense, uh, what we're seeing is is a shift where maybe you know, a government-run space agency doesn't have to do everything uh, to make low-Earth orbit possible for humans. I guess the, the thing that we always kind of have a bit of a concern about, though, with private companies taking over a space is that it's an unregulated space then. So with these increased kind of public-private partnerships that are happening with space travel, are there government regulations that are coming into play to, to make sure that it doesn't just become about the corporate interests? I think that's a really great question, and I don't think there's a, a single clear answer to that yet. Clearly, at the moment, you know, you have some astronauts coming to the space station. This is a very constrained situation with, uh, with where cooperation with the, the agencies and the nations that are partners on the space station uh, is explicit. And, and uh, of course, once the private presence is such that maybe they have their own station or they have or stations or lots of others are, are launching, 
that may change things because you also kind of wonder, you know, what's the jurisdiction in space? It's a little bit like the high seas in a way, um, maybe even more so. I think the constraint on that is there are only so many people that are going to went to space. But there are international organizations that are trying to, you know, lay out policies and, and to determine agreements that will help foster the peaceful use of space. And in a way, it just adds an additional f- player or an additional factor in those efforts where you're already trying to get uh, different countries, often with very different governing systems. You know, you think about China uh, and the United States, for example, or other other players in space uh, to get these countries to cooperate in how space is utilized. You know, the private sector then brings an additional wrinkle to, to the table. But that's where how that's going to be worked out. Yeah. I want to talk about one of the the criticisms that we heard a lot about after Jeff Bezos and and Richard Branson went into space last year. Uh, Many people were bringing up the fact that rocket launches results in a lot of greenhouse gas emissions there. And, you know, at a time when we're really trying to reduce that, are these flights necessary given the environmental cost? And is there an argument for it, I guess? That's another good question, but I'm not sure how you weigh that, uh, because lots of science has a large carbon footprint. Um, obviously, going to space is very energy intense. On the other hand, the number of people who go to space is just a handful, you know, in the big scheme of things, uh, especially compared to all the launches, commercial and public, of uh, hardware into orbit. And We're at a point now where it would be very difficult to imagine living without the products of space, including GPS. So when you you say hardware, that's like satellites, essentially? Exactly. Satellites, satellites mainly. Yeah. And things that are put up in orbit to serve us in different ways, you know, including climate monitoring. So there's much more of that going up than there are people going up. I haven't done the math in terms of what the total carbon footprint is, and I'm not sure how you would balance that against what the scientific value is. I think, like many things, it's really not a quantitative question, but there's a value judgment there. And I think that that debate is going to continue, but I don't think it's going to deter people from from wanting to go to space. I think there's a, a certain personality profile whether it's they're adventurous or whether they just have a feeling that the long game for humanity somehow involves investment in space, it's a deep conviction that this is important. And I think people either have it or they don't. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of on the fence about it. I find it fascinating uh, to see how people articulate the value of space or not. And I think that's a conversation that's going to continue. Do you know if you would go to space given the opportunity, Ivan? I think it's very unlikely that my family would go for it. <laughs> but since I'm, uh, but I don't know, maybe. But since uh, since I haven't been presented with the option, I, I don't know what I would say. I don't know what I would do. Oddly, I think if it were part of my work, uh, that would make it easier. Mm-hmm. But whether I would do it just for personal things, I, I have to say I'm not sure. Ivan, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our intern is Emily McPhail. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.